Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Time And so later in December, in an executive meeting, when one of our senior vice presidents said, we had to think about accepting Bitcoin, I knew what the sentence meant, and we quickly got behind the idea. And we announced in the press that sometime in the second half of 2014, Overstock would accept Bitcoin. We had a group of developers come to us right around Christmas time and said, why are we going to take so long to accept Bitcoin? And they locked themselves in a room between that week, in that week between Christmas and New Year's. We slid pizza under the door. Uh, and on January 9th, 2014, we became the first billion dollar company to be, to accept Bitcoin. Today we accept about 50 different cryptocurrencies on our site. They do not represent a large portion of our sales, about point percent, but they are a growing portion. We have somewhere between sixty and $120,000 a week in crypto revenue. People buying sheets and toasters using Bitcoin or Ethereum or other coins. When we first accepted Bitcoin, we quickly learned that as cool as cryptocurrency was as a way for people to transact, that the real transformational technology was the underlying blockchain. And blockchain uh, is much more than Bitcoin. I would say Bitcoin is to blockchain like email is to the internet. When I was a freshman in college and got my first email on CompuServe, I thought, wow, this is the internet. This is something. Turns out the internet is so much more than just email. It's everything we do and how it affects our lives today. And so we decided at Overstock to figure out ways to be on the front edge of blockchain development and blockchain deployment, just like we were near the front edge of of e-commerce. And so the reason that we like Bitcoin, or I'm sorry, blockchain so much, is when you think about the current process for you and me transferring an asset digitally, we have to rely on a number of trust intermediaries, brokers in between us, whether that is the government or regulators or uh, broker dealers or prime brokers or a clearing corporation that lets us transact digitally when we spend or use assets. Well, anytime you have middlemen in between, you're creating friction. And that friction shows up in the, in the form of cost, uh, time, uh, mistake, uh, fraud, all these things. And so 
what blockchain does is it provides trust through technology. A lot of people call blockchain trustless technology. I guess that's okay, but I like trust through technology because it allows you and me, when we are exchanging a digital asset and we don't know each other, to trust each other and eliminate middlemen. I go back to when I was in elementary school and my neighbor and friend Warren Kolodny and I would trade baseball cards. I would have a Steve Garvey card from the Dodgers. He would have a Johnny Bench card from the Reds. And when we would trade them, we would each hold half of the card. And then one, two, three, we would let go and pull. There was trust. We didn't have anyone middleman in the middle. That's what blockchain does. It lets us have this electronic handshake where we know that the other party, even if we don't know them, is good for what they're holding in their hand and will let go on the one, two, three count. And that we can pull that and we'll let go and, and they can get it. So that's that's a simple way of how we trade assets digitally. So we set up a subsidiary company called Medici Ventures that is half venture capital firm, half incubator. We have about 65 developers that work on blockchain projects and help our portfolio companies move forward. We think blockchain will do these three things. We think it will democratize capital. Today, so many of us can't participate in the capital markets the way accredited investors or well-connected investors can. And those of us that are trying to raise money have a harder time crowdfunding and finding ways to raise money in a democratized way. We think blockchain technology will do that. We also, as I said, think it eliminates middlemen, taking out cost and friction. And this is kind of a large amorphous statement, but we think it rehumanizes commerce, where people can once again shake hands electronically and have that electronic handshake be just like a physical handshake where a deal becomes a deal. So we have invested, there's 12 companies here, it's now 14 that we've made investments in, that are doing anything that involves transfer of assets, and I put that in air quotes, uh, digitally. An asset may be a currency, it may be stock, it may be land, it may be a vote. Anything that when you transfer it, you don't want it there to be what's called a double spend problem. If I give you a $20 bill digitally, you don't want me to give you a copy of the $20 bill so I can give a copy to someone else. We want the actual real McCoy thing to be transferred. Votes are like that. When you vote, the county clerk wants to know that that is your vote and you have given it up in that election, you have voted, not multiple voted. So we can talk about each of these. I want to talk about two ways that we're really excited about how blockchain can solve real-world problems. The first is banking the unbanked, and the second is unleashing dead capital around the world. Now, both of these problems are bigger problems outside the United States in developing nations. And frankly, I think that's where blockchain technology will be uh, 
employed first because it's nations trying to catch up to incumbents. They're trying to catch up just like it's, it's a technology leap, just like we used to wonder, how will we ever lay enough copper wire for there to be phones in India? Turns out we didn't have to lay any copper wire for there to be cell phones in India. This will allow developing nations to do leapfrog through technology. So talk about banking the unbanked. Gabriel Bett is the founder of a, of a company that's uh, in our portfolio called BIT, B-I-T-T. And he has said it is expensive to be poor. 25, I'm sorry, uh, I show this. Bits in the Caribbean. 40% of people in the Caribbean are unbanked. And they don't have a bank account. In South America, that's 70%. In Africa, it's upward of 90%. In the U.S., it's about 8%. What does it mean to be unbanked? For most people, it doesn't mean they don't have a job or they don't have an address or they're not paying utility bills. It just means that the banking system has become so tight in ensuring security that they're not allowed to have a bank account. Think about what your life would be like if you didn't have a bank account. If you had to take time off work to go pay your utility bills, couldn't send a check in, couldn't do an internet transfer, but you had to actually have cash in hand and go down. Life just gets hard if you're unbanked. Now think about the reason that most of us, think about the two benefits that most of us have from a bank account. I use a bank primarily for two reasons. One, to store my money. So when I get a paycheck from Medici Ventures, I'm not getting paid in cash and taking it home and putting it in a, in a shoebox in my sock drawer and hoping it stays secure. I store my money in a bank. The second reason that, second thing I use a bank for most days is access to digital money. So that when my wife Courtney and I go on our standard Saturday date down to Costco, we're not taking a gangster wad of cash to get through the checkout. We have a credit card or a debit card that is digital cash, which means we don't have to carry cash. Those are the two primary reasons I have a bank account. Well, if you have a digital wallet with digital currency, whether that's a digital currency, cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, or whether it's a fiat currency in a digital form, you don't need a bank account. You can use your digital wallet to pay at the store, to pay your bills, and it's safe. It's not in your sock drawer in a shoebox. Bit has created a digital wallet that's being used in the Caribbean. They are working with central banks in the Caribbean. They have a memorandum of understanding with the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank, where that central bank is going to begin issuing some of its currency digitally. So the people that don't have bank accounts can leapfrog into the 21st century and participate in the digital economy. That's doable because of blockchain technology. So uh, here is BIT. Digital wallets, digital fiat currencies from central banks. It means near frictionless payments, including remittances. I come to Washington fairly often. Whenever I take a cab in Washington, I always ask the driver where he's from. 
Where do you think most of them are from? Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Almost always. Then I ask, how frequently do you get back to Ethiopia? The answer is somewhere between infrequently and never. And then I ask, do you have family in Ethiopia? Yes. Almost always yes. Do you send money back to your family? The answer is yes. How do you do it? Western Union. That means someone on one or both sides of that transaction is unbanked. The cost of money transmission through Western Union is somewhere between 7 and 15% on both sides. That's expensive. Digital wallets using blockchain technology lets you make that transaction nearly for free. What that does is it creates great financial inclusion. It brings people in the world that aren't participating in the financial markets into the financial markets. We've also invested in a company in South America called Ripio. It has a 32-year-old CEO. Three times in his lifetime, he lives in Argentina, three times in his lifetime, he has seen the value of the Argentinian peso go to zero. When you're in a country with that kind of economy, what do you, what's the best thing to do when you get paid? Spend your money. Because bread will be more expensive tomorrow than it is today or next week or spend it quickly. It does not encourage savings. What they're doing is they're letting people take Argentinian peso and put it into cryptocurrency. Now you may say, boy, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, it fluctuates all over. It was it 3,012 months ago and 1,900 a coin in December and it's at 6,800 today. That may seem wild if you're a U.S. dollar holder. But if you're an Argentinian peso holder, you like that. And so they have a growing business that allows people a chance to save, save their money digitally in a meaningful way. So we think blockchain helps bank the unbanked. Next, I want to talk about unleashing dead capital. Hernando de Soto, not the explorer, but the Peruvian economist, said the hour of capitalism's greatest triumph is, in the eyes of four-fifths of humanity, its hour of crisis. He talks about how in most of the world, real property rights are not like they are in the developed world. If you want to buy a home, your broker and your bank are going to make sure that the person that you are buying the home from owns the property. They will go to the county recorder. They will make sure that property is owned, that there aren't liens on it. And when the title transfers to you, you better believe they're going to make sure that that ownership is transferred to your name with a big lien on it from the bank. Right? It's going to be very clear who owns that. In most of the developing world, that's not the case. There are not government records which show who owns what. And in order... To prove what you own, to get that put on a government record, it can take years and years, decades of time, and lots of money. Sometimes bribes, sometimes just fees that make it very difficult. If you can't prove you own the property you live in, whether that's a favela in Brazil, or it's a cart in a, in a marketplace in Tunisia, it is difficult to leverage your capital. 
What you don't do is you don't keep it up because when the next dictator gets put in, next generalissimo gets put in place, your property may be his cousin's property. It's hard to enforce it. Uh, so you don't fix it up. It's harder to sell. And what's almost impossible is to borrow against it. And most entrepreneurs I know in the West have started their business with a second mortgage on their home. Real property is live capital because we can borrow against it. In the developing world, it's not. So in the developing world, it is not as if that property isn't owned and there aren't records of it. There are records all over. There are informal ledgers. Sometimes they're written on chalkboards. Sometimes they're kept by the local tribesmen. This first slide up there is a picture of a mining claim. Think about how the miners in the 1850s proved their stake in the Sierra Nevada. They'd stake their claim to a tree, and that was an informal ledger that over time got recorded, sometimes fighting through the courts, but ultimately became a property right that is well-recognized today. These property rights exist, but they're on informal ledgers. Turning those rights, to, as I said, takes years, takes time and money. Blockchain can unleash that dead capital. We have partnered with Hernando de Soto to create a company that is working first in Peru, then in some countries in northern Africa, to, to take those informal ledgers, put them on the blockchain, put them on an immutable record, so that people can, that own the property, have a better way of proving that they own it. In some countries, we're working with governments to push this through. Some countries are working with local tribal leaders, and we're working from the bottom up. There are different ways to unleash the capital. Let me tell you one great side effect from this. Back in the 19, late 1980s and early 1990s, there was a Maoist terrorist group in Peru called the Shining Path. We're trying to take over Peru. Hernando de Soto said what they're doing, the way they're getting the people in the mountain areas and the villages to get them is they're saying, we'll enforce your property rights. So he went to President Fujimori, the president of Peru at the time, and he said, let's try and get these property rights legitimized. And they went out there and they did it, and that's how the shining path was beaten. This is a great way, I think, to stop global terrorism. The way the Arab Spring started in Tunisia, the, man, the first man who lit himself on fire was not a religious zealot. He was someone who had his property rights taken away in the local bazaar. His truck and his cart had been, had been taken by the government, and he felt he had no redress and no way to do it. So he lit himself on fire and the Arab Spring starts. Giving people access to property rights will change their lives. Giving them access to a bank account in the digital economy will change their lives. One thing I've learned is that when I'm giving a speech, I can only be assured that one person in the room cares what I'm saying. But if I'm answering a question, I've at least doubled the, I've doubled the number of people who care. So I can go on forever about this, but I'd love to answer your questions. And nothing's off limits. 
And I'm never ashamed to say I don't know the answer. Uh, all I ask is that you tell me your name so I know who you are and uh, take it away. Two microphones coming around, so if you get recognized with the mic, please okay. also ask, please, that everybody ask a question and, and not give their own speech, if possible. <laughs> Tell me your name. Jordan? Uh, George Basali. It's nice to meet you. I represent EY in the Office of Public Policy. And I just have a question on the last thing you said, um, the whole, like, blockchain legitimizing property rights. Do you think, like... I don't know much about this technology, and I'm still learning a lot about it, but do you think it could, like, fall into the wrong hands in terms of, like, let's say, like, you had just mentioned the Arab Spring, right? So, like, a corrupt uh, dictator or leader, could, like, that fall into the wrong hands, like that technology? Well, what it, what it does is it creates a record. Let me just explain what – step back and explain what blockchain is. It's very good at saying from the genesis of truth – so you say, here's what it is today, seeing how an asset transfers over time. There it creates an immutable record of who owned what back to Genesis, whatever the genesis of the, of the issuing of a Bitcoin or putting the property rights on there. If property rights are recorded incorrectly the first time, then it can be troublesome. Now that can be corrected through courts and you could go back and fix it. I actually think anytime you are getting property rights correctly documented, you're doing a benefit. Will there be some error in it? Perhaps. Uh, but I think it, and with property rights, you need two things. You need title and you do need rule of law. And so a dictator undermines that second one. But I, I think it's better than where we are today, George. Does that address your question? Right here in the front. David Burton. David Burton, the Heritage Foundation. I have two tangentially related questions. One is, you talked about how a lot of folks in the third world are unbanked and correspondent banking relationships are starting to collapse. The primary reason for that is uh, anti-money laundering rules and Bank Secrecy Act, know your customers, so on and so forth. I was wondering how your firm is addressing those legal requirements uh, that are causing the banks to de-risk. And then I, I know that at one point, Overstock was thinking about using distributed ledger blockchain technology for purposes of settling securities transactions. And I was curious how you get, are progressing on that. David, thank you. Two, two great questions. So you talk about anti-money laundering and know your customer laws. And we have swung uh, post 9-11 to me, there's two, there's two kind of sides of the spectrum on how we're going to let people be involved in the financial market. There's one that says we're going to make sure it's completely secure and there's going to be no anti-money laundering. We're going to know everyone we've got in the system to inclusion. And we're way over here right now. And frankly, what that has done is it's pushed people who should be in the system out of the system. And when that happens, they either enter into a gray market or a black market. And I think being at this far end of the spectrum is frankly unhealthy. I think being somewhere more in the middle, no one wants to create a banking system that finances terrorism. But frankly, terrorists are going to figure out a way to finance themselves one way or another. We are involved in KYC, Know Your Customer, and Anti-Money Laundering. Uh, we follow the rules every time. 
We've invested in a company called Finclusive that's going to try and do that one time so that then someone has a digital identity that they can then use to go and be banked. Process they're trying to make the AML KYC laws easier to comply with. Once someone gets a digital identity and can prove who they are, we do not want to circumvent laws that, you know, worry about that they're there to protect us against terrorists and bad actors. Uh, as far as um, uh, settlement in the stock market, any of you who know a long history of overstock know that one of the fights we fought for a decade was against a form of Wall Street manipulation called naked short selling. Not nearly as sexy as anything with the word naked and it should be. But it basically means when someone shorts a stock rather than actually borrowing it, they sell something they have not borrowed, they take the money, and the settlement of the trade, money for stock, doesn't happen. It fails, there's a failure to deliver what they call an FTD in the, in the, in the industry parlance. We believe the blockchain technology can make trade and settlement instantaneous. Not trade plus three days or now trade plus two days, but instantaneous. And Overstock has issued a digital share that trades on blockchain technology where trade is instantaneous. T0, our portfolio company is doing this, is building a system to allow other companies that want to issue digital securities to trade and settle immediately on an exchange or an alternative trading system, uh, they can do that. And so we're in the process of trying to expand that. Does that address your questions, David? So it's more like a prototype phase at this point? Prototype, yeah. I don't know if you remember Jonas Salk when he invented the polio vaccine, couldn't get anyone to take it. So he inoculated himself and it worked, thank goodness. Overstock has inoculated itself, done the first digital security. We're building it more in a more robust way so more can use it. Yes. Here in the blue. More So, great question, Warren. And at some level, first of all, I don't think blockchain should be used for every application that is talked about today. Sometimes a centralized database is all you need. And a centralized database could, could do much of what I've talked about. The problem with a centralized database is that it is owned and controlled by one entity or 
a small group of entities and thus can be changed. The decentralized database that is blockchain technology in that sense is more secure and I think that's where it's valuous. Let, let me give an example. One of our portfolio companies named Factum is working with the Gates Foundation to, in South Africa, to, when patients are getting um, tested for viruses, uh, what they do is they log on biometrically to prove who they are. They're tested. Their results are put on a blockchain database. And you go, well, Canada, they put everything on a medical records on a single database up there. Why, why isn't that good enough? Well, it's because in South Africa, when new rulers come around, they wipe the database clean or they change it. And here, where this migrant population speaking lots of different languages, going to one doctor or another, it's really useful for the doctor to know, oh, we can log on, get the info on the blockchain. What have past tests shown? What are the current tests shown? What were past dosages of what drugs given? It's improving healthcare. So I think the value of a decentralized ledger is it should be harder to hack because you're not hacking into one spot. And you're not under control of one entity that can, if it turns into a bad actor, can change it. Costs. There are a lot of ways to look at it. I'll just give an anecdotal one. Overstock accepts credit cards. Overstock accepts cryptocurrency. Uh, we pay a processing fee for our credit cards. We employ about 40 people in what we call our fraud department. We should probably call them our anti-fraud department because that's what they're fighting for. That's a cost of doing business with credit cards. When we take cryptocurrency, we have a very, very small transaction fee with Coinbase, the wallet, much smaller than our uh, credit card processing fee. And we have no fraud prevention department. It's like a cash transaction. It's a permanent transaction. So for us, that is a much cheaper way of doing business. All these other ways, yes, there are costs. We haven't done, I, I couldn't tell you the cost for each of the different verticals we're working in, but that's an anecdotal answer. Does that address the question? Just one quick follow-up. Sure. You accept Bitcoin. Uh, what do you do to protect yourself against the highly volatile value of that relative to your sale price? Yeah. So when we first started accepting Bitcoin, we immediately turned all of it into U.S. dollars because we didn't have a way to spend it. Uh, then we had some vendors that said, boy, if you could pay us in Bitcoin, we would love it. So we would convert 90% of our Bitcoin revenue into dollars and 10% uh, we keep in Bitcoin. Today, it's half and half. Half and half, and we pay some vendors in Bitcoin. And then we let our Treasury Department sell it, and they sold a fair amount in the third and fourth quarter of last year, and they were smart. Uh, and, and we're, you know, massing it again today. <laughs> Uh, I will say that if you buy a sofa in Bitcoin, say you buy a $1,000 sofa in Bitcoin, and you return it, we're going to give you on your return the equivalent. We're not going to, let's say you paid sixth of a Bitcoin. We're not going to give you a sixth of a Bitcoin when you return it. We're going to give you $1,000 of Bitcoin at the current price. You cannot hedge the market with overstock goods. Let's get some on this side. You choose over there. 
Hi there, Jay Jang with the American Bankers Association. So two questions, uh, nice to meet you as well. Uh, two, one of the areas we're looking at blockchain application is in trade finance. And, you know, just recently HSBS confirmed that they went through a trade finance uh, transaction successfully uh, internationally. So when you look at DLT, a big component of that is you have to have buy-in with all the different stakeholders. So, you know, looking more broadly outside of the U.S., how important is it to establish kind of symposiums of uh, financial institutions that might work together? You know, are, are these symposiums the new trade deals kind of relevant now? Uh, second piece is looking at, you know, democratization of capital, right? Could you speak on how ICOs might be a way of uh, raising capital and helping people uh, – you know, raise those funds in ways that they can't really do in the current public markets? Sure. Two good questions. So first one, I would say uh, a lot of blockchain applications require a network effect. So when I talked about Bit using a digital wallet in the Caribbean, you need consumers that have a digital wallet and you need merchants who will take it. When you talk about uh, international trade transactions, you need a network effect so that people will work. That That's going to take time. Uh, some blockchain applications don't take network effects. We've invested in a company that does back office work for banks that, that put all of their transactions on the blockchain, and they're doing that because it cuts their compliance costs down. And now I have an immutable record that the regulators can trust more than this their central database because it's distributed, uh, and do it. So there is a need for buy-in on some types of things. So that's uh, point number one. Point number two, uh, initial coin offerings and democratizing capital. Uh, 2017 was the year of the ICO, or the initial coin offering, and there were a lot of them. Uh, Medici Ventures has not invested in a single ICO. In large part, because, now we've had some of our portfolio companies that have done or are doing them, so we're not opposed to them. But in large part because the regulation around them is still very hazy. And I'm going to say first and foremost, I'm not a fan of regulation, period, full stop. Uh, now that said, sometimes we need regulation to give guidelines. Investors want to invest in things they know that work. Issuers want to obey the law and raise money the right way. Today, under the current rules in the U.S., the Howey test, which is an old court case from the middle of last century, gives guidance on what is a security and what isn't. It's gray. It's gray, and it means people are, some people are trying to comply with it, some people are trying to push the edge of it. I think it's time for the SEC or Congress to provide guidance to say, if you're issuing a coin or a token, security token or an ICO, this is what makes it a security and this is what does not. Clarity will be very helpful here. Does that address your question, Jay? Okay. Right here in the middle. Thank you. Diego Zulaga from the Cato Institute. Um, my question is in line with your last comment about regulation. How much uh, of a solution 
or, or rather, how much of the problem to which blockchain is a solution is a regulatory problem rather than a technological problem? And therefore, if regulators were very enlightened and listened to all that we say and the problems we've identified in terms of the regulatory reforms that are needed. Let me know where that nirvana is. <laughs> I want to go. If that, if that were to happen, how much would we see disintermediation of the kind you outlined actually spread? Uh, because it seems to me that people do like the fact that they have someone to address when there's a problem with service delivery or some liability that they can claim against. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I wonder if the regulatory barriers to access to banking, access to capital markets, accredited investor standards and so on, if all those were removed, what would then be the scope for blockchain applications in a disintermediated fashion? Thank you. Diego, that's an interesting question. I think one of the great intermediaries today is government, right? It is a trust institution that's between you and me and how we do business. Uh, and um, I don't know if blockchain does away with that. It, it certainly doesn't. I mean, I think governments are here to stay. Uh, they're here to stay. But, but in an, much of much of regulation is built up around these intermediaries, broker-dealer licenses, insurance regulation, you know, all, all these things that are that touch trust intermediaries. If you eliminate the need for some of those intermediaries, maybe the scales of regulation fall off. I don't know if that – it's a question I haven't thought about a lot, what if we didn't have regulation? That's a Cato Institute type of question. It's great. We're working on it. Thank you. Let's go back on this side. There's a lot of hands. Hello, Matthew Linehan from the Jack Kemp Foundation. Um, being in retail, do you see a future where the average uh, consumer trusts the stability of Bitcoin or whatever the coin is of the future? to uh, use it in retail and where you see um, a point to percent of your margins, do you see a 10 to 20% future? Uh, Matthew, yes. Short answer is yes. I think we are very early on an adoption curve of cryptocurrency. And today, most of us that own cryptocurrency own it in the savings or investment part of our money. If I get paid in dollars, I take a portion that I'm going to live on, and I take a portion that I'm going to invest and save. And just like I don't use assets in my 401k to buy things at Overstock or at Costco, most people don't use their Bitcoin to buy things at Overstock or at Costco. I think there will be a time, and it probably happens outside the United States first, where people are being paid in a digital currency, a cryptocurrency. And then they're taking a portion of their cryptocurrency to live on. They're taking a portion of it to save and, and invest. When there is this live-on portion that is cryptocurrency, that's when we'll see it used more and more daily transactions. Where we are on that S-curve of adoption, how steep that S-curve is, I don't know how steep it is. I know we're on the early part of it. I suspect it will be fairly steep. I think there's going to be a, a quick... Technology is getting adopted faster and faster. And I think this is just uh, will be another example. In the back. Did I address your question, Matthew? Yes. Thanks. 
Um, my name's Rachel. I'm with the Stimson Center. So I have a question about blockchain and then nuclear export control. So, oh, your way. <laughs> yeah. Um, my fear is with decentralization, you have more of the ability to be hacked. So how do you feel that blockchain technology will either hinder or support monitoring for illicit activity in the future? Ask the question again. I want to understand. You, I when you said nuclear, I just thought, okay, I'm way over my head. So you, I'm still trying to grasp the question myself. Okay. So I'll work it through. But I'm thinking of nuclear export control. And I understand how blockchain can be beneficial. But what I struggle with is when we're dealing with nuclear materials and you have de deregulation, there's more of an ability to be hacked. And that's my fear is that when you go to these higher stakes, I'm worried about where will blockchain go and how do you how do you feel that blockchain will be able to monitor some of these transactions in the future when you're dealing with nuclear material? Okay. I'm going to talk about it in general because I haven't thought about nuclear material. I'm just going to admit that up front. Uh, the Bitcoin blockchain has not been hacked. Uh, now, Wallets that hold Bitcoin have, but to me that's very different. That means like a bank has been robbed, not that the money system has been changed. Um, blockchain has an interesting problem uh, in that if 51% of the nodes are held by one person or one group of people, they can change the past because it's a majority rule thing. Um, I think that the system is set up so that everyone is, every person is disincentivized to get to that majority, because as soon as someone owns 51% of the Bitcoin nodes and can make the decision, value of Bitcoin should go to zero, because you can't trust it anymore. So the game theory there, I think, helps it. Um, as far as monitoring illicit transaction, and this may not be exactly on point, but it's an interesting uh, anecdote. In the spring of 2014, I was asked to go testify in front of the New York Financial Services Commission as a retailer accepting Bitcoin. I was a meeting in New York in the afternoon. In the morning, I had another meeting in New York with the FBI on another matter, and I did that meeting, finished it, and at the end I asked the FBI, FBI agent, I said, tell me what you think of Bitcoin. And he said, oh, we love it. And I said, well, tell me why. All I read about in the press is it's used for Silk Road and illicit activities and it's anonymous. He said, it's not anonymous. It leaves this electronic footprint that we can follow and we can catch bad guys and we can seize their assets. So that's what I heard in the morning. The afternoon, I went to testify. The two people testifying in front of me were the Attorney General for the State of New York and the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Manhattan. And the cameras are there and the lights are on. And they're saying, Bitcoin evil, Bitcoin used by criminals, Bitcoin anonymous. Totally different story. The U.S. Attorney and the FBI agent work for the same DOJ. How do you reconcile these two things? Well, at that point, one of the largest holders of Bitcoin in the world was the Department of Justice. Not because it was mining, not because it was 
uh, buying in the open spot market, but because it was seizing. Look, Bitcoin will be used for illicit transactions. No question. So is cash. So is credit card. I'm sure so was salt when it was paid as salary to the Roman soldiers. Currency will always be used for illegal activities. To throw the baby out with the bathwater is a mistake. I think it's very monitorable, and you can see who can do it. Now, does that mean see who can do it after a nuclear holocaust is good enough? Probably not. Certainly not, right? But that's, I guess that's as much as I've thought on that question. Does that address? Okay. Right here in the yellow tie. Good morning. Uh, Paul Mullen here with the Heritage Foundation. In your estimation, how close in the United States do you think we are, we are uh, to mass adoption? And really what I mean is until retailers are pricing their goods in Bitcoin or in these other currencies. Um, and then the second question I have for you is how do you think uh, or what it really is the practical application for blockchain in voting? Okay. So how close? Uh, you know, h- hard question. Um Again, it's where are we on that ad- adoption curve? Um, I think we'll get pricing things in Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency overseas before it's here. Uh, I do think that there's probably a lot of people around the world that would love to see something other than the dollar as the de facto global currency. You know, we quote the price of a barrel of oil and the value of a Thai bot in dollar, uh, in dollars. I don't know. I mean, I know why, but I don't know why. Uh, and it, it, at some point, I think that happens, whether it's in Bitcoin or whatever the winning, if there is a winning uh, currency, that happens. So I, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if it's within a decade. Uh, voting. I think voting is a great application. I'm glad you asked the question. We have a portfolio company called Votes, V-O-A-T-Z. Before I tell you what votes does, I want to give you an example of all the trust intermediaries in a vote that I participated in last year. So I live in Utah Congressional District 3. Mr. Chaffetz was our congressman, and he resigned midterm. So we had a special election. And in Utah, we have closed primaries, which means Republicans only can vote in a Republican primary. We also vote by mail, almost exclusively. So first trust intermediary you rely on is the county clerk to send the right ballot to the right people. Well, in Congressional District 3, the two lar- the county clerks in the two largest counties in the district sent Republican ballots to all the registered Republicans and all the unaffiliated voters. Trust institution failure. And what did they say? Well, we're not going to send out new ballots. We'll fix it on the back end. And I, I wonder. How do they send out those ballots? They send them out via U.S. Postal Service. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, for some people, trust institution, failure. They didn't get their ballot. Then you get your ballot, you fill it out, you slide it into a confidentiality sleeve, you put that sleeve into the envelope, you seal the envelope, and you sign your name. So they know who you are. If you don't sign it the same way you signed your voter ID card, County clerk's not going to count your ballot. So what if you signed your voter ID card with your maiden name and now you're married? What if you have a middle initial or a Roman numeral that sometimes you use and sometimes you don't? Uh, you send it back in. The county clerk opens it. 
Our state auditor did an audit of these ballots. It turns out almost all of the confidentiality sleeves were see-through. So much for the secret ballot that's part of the Utah Constitution. Then it gets fed through a machine and you hope it votes, you hope it counts it right. Never once have I ever known that my vote was counted as cast. Trusted every time that that's how it's been. Never once have I really known that votes that weren't cast weren't counted. Votes has a technology that it used in a, in a pilot program in West Virginia during their, uh, primary election in two counties for overseas military voters. They log on to the votes application on their phone. They confirm who they are with a biometric. The county clerk sees this is a registered voter in my county, serves them up a ballot, the right ballot. They vote. They send it in with a cryptographically secure way. So the county clerk doesn't know it's me, Major Johnson, voting from Germany. But the county clerk, she knows this is a guy who's allowed to vote. It's not like today when military vote, they email it in or they fax it in and they waive their right to privacy on their vote. Comes in, she knows it's a vote that's to be counted. She counts it. Major Johnson can come and log in with his key, his cryptographic key, and see my vote was counted as cast. Remote, digital, safe and secure voting. They did a pilot in two counties. We expect at the end of this month that they'll announce they're going to roll it out statewide in West Virginia for the general election. West Virginia, the cutting edge of technology. <laughs> I love it. I love saying that sentence. I think that's how it's used. And frankly, that's going to increase voter participation. I know this never happens to a group that gathers at the Heritage Foundation, but it happens to a lot of people. You show up at work. You see someone with their I voted sticker on their lapel and you go, oh, I gotta vote today. Maybe you're thinking about that in Virginia. If you're from Virginia, oh, I gotta vote today. And your work gets busy, you don't get there, you don't vote. What if you could just log on? Your phone, iris scan, face scan, thumbprint, whatever, and vote. We get voter participation web. And you know what else we'd never have? A hanging chat. So I think, I think it's got great application. Invoke. Does that address your question? Okay. Right here, on the very edge. Hi, um, Ethan Katz on the Hill. Um, on the I'm, Hill. I <laughs> work on the Hill, yeah. Okay. I want to go back to the financial institution part of it because I remember when blockchain and Bitcoin started coming out, banks were particularly concerned with how they'd be cut out as the middlemen in those financial transactions. Indeed. And on the other hand, they were very happy that it could expedite their processes of transfers between like the Central Bank of Japan and the United States. So how do you see that dichotomy playing out in the future and where do you think the large banks will end up siding? Well, I know incumbents never like to be disintermediated. Um, And so if I were an executive at a large bank, uh, I would be working to embrace this technology because I think it's going to, just just like people should have learned to embrace the Internet, uh, you know, three decades ago. Um, uh, I don't know that that's what all incumbents will do. I think some incumbents will run to the regulators and work to secure their position through regulation. That's what worries me. Captured regulators playing along. 
I know this is heresy at a Heritage Foundation event, but I, but I want to praise something that President Clinton did early in his administration. He signed, a, he signed a bill or an executive order saying that the Internet was to grow free and unfettered from government regulation. We should not be regulating this technology. If there are uses of it that need regulation, maybe. Uh, but I don't know which way the banks will go. I know that if I was an executive at one, I would be figuring out how to incorporate it in my business. Because I think that's where, I think that's where the world's going to go. Does that answer your question, Ethan? In the red. And then, well, you're behind a poll. You've probably been raising your hand a long time. I'm sorry. We'll get you next. Hi, I'm Cheryl Aaron, senior counsel at the law firm Michael Best and Friedrich. I was just wondering if you have any views on the concept of blockchain-based digital identity and whether that's something Medici Ventures is looking at or investing in. So, yes, uh, digital identity. Frankly, I think this is the holy grail of blockchain. If you can own, if you can be self-sovereign in your identity and give only to someone what is needed to process a transaction. Today, if you come to Overstock to buy something, what do you give us? Usually your email address. You can use a guest account, but usually your email address. Your, if you use a credit card, you give us a credit card number and a CVC number. You give us a delivery address uh, and a billing address. Uh, you probably give us a password. You have a lot of stuff. You go to your doc, go to your bank. They know what elementary school you went to in second grade. They know where you met your spouse. I mean, they, whatever all these clues are we fill out, they know. That's foolishness in my mind. Uh, if we can prove who we are digitally and then give just enough information for what they need, what you give to Overstock, what you give to your, is different than what you give to your bank, which is very different than what you give to your doctor. Um, we, we've looked at a lot of identity companies. Uh, we've invested in a couple. Uh, one is Finclusive, which is trying to help people enter into the uh, financial markets uh, by creating a digital identity. Another one that we've looked at and haven't invested in, but I think has got very powerful technology, is Evernim. They have this sovereign uh, system that's being used by a lot of people. I think when you have your digital identity and you can share only what you need to is when you become self-sovereign. So does that address your question? I'm going to sneak over here so I can see you. Uh, Brian Chung from the Global America Business Institute. Uh, I have a question about the security of these blockchains and cryptocurrencies. Uh, North Korea has proven to have hacked quite a few uh, cryptocurrencies. They've stolen quite a lot of money from Asian countries. Uh, to my understanding, as you mentioned, it's because they have quite a big processing power that exceeds 50% of these smaller startups. Uh, how can these, how can this be technically addressed by the blockchain technology? Uh, you know, I was reading an article just this morning about several smaller blockchain coins uh, that had recently been hacked uh, because of this 51% problem. Frankly, I think that's why Bitcoin and, and is, is in a position that's best. You know, sometimes the first mover gets passed by 2.0 and 3.0 movers. In this case, I'm not sure it will because as, as people figure out what, how to hack these things, you're most vulnerable when you're small. Uh, and 
I'm not technical enough to address the question of how the small ones get big without that. Uh, but I do think it gives Bitcoin a significant advantage. To follow up on that, there's actually a cap on the number of Bitcoins that can exist. So there are theories that once that cap is reached, Bitcoin would have to start over again if it wanted to continue with this idea. So wouldn't even the large currencies eventually have to start over if you put a limit on the number of cryptocurrencies that can be mined? Well, the, there is a cap on Bitcoin. And frankly, I think it's one of the virtues of it because it makes it a better store of value. It's 21 million coins and a little less than 17 million have been mined to date. The mining gets slower and harder and it's not to run out till 20, someone will know better than I, 2050-ish, something like that. Uh, I think that in that intermediate, in that intervening time, there'll be a solution we haven't figured out yet. I don't know the answer yet. Okay. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for coming. I hope this was of some use. Just, just want to thank you all for coming very much. This is a great crowd. We're done.